0: The Gospel of Luke began at the Temple in Jerusalem, and here we are once again near that Temple as Luke draws this first volume of his work to a close. As you well know, the Temple held a particular place of devotion and clarity of purpose within Judaism, perhaps even heightened by the time of Luke's Gospel. The Temple had been destroyed by Roman armies at the time that he was writing, and no doubt its physical absence created a greater spiritual appreciation. The Temple was the place of God's choosing. The place of encounter with the God who led them in the desert, assisted them in battle when necessary, and called them to worthy worship. And now, in the final hours of Jesus' life, all the climactic events are recalled as happening in the shadow of that temple. Right in the shadow of God's presence, Jesus is taken to the house of the high priest, not far from the temple mount, then taken to Pilate's quarters on the opposite side of the city, then even brought before Herod, who was in Jerusalem at the time. After being sentenced to death, he was forced to walk the ancient paths from the center of town near the temple to the place of the skull for his crucifixion. He would return to the shadow of that great temple as the resurrected Messiah to encourage his disciples and to commission them to leave the comforts of Jerusalem to preach in his name to all the nations. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's return to the end of the last session. At the close of chapter 22, you'll recall that the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin were most concerned about Jesus' identity. Was he the Messiah, the one destined for a saving role in Israel? Was he claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to have a unique relationship to the Father? These titles implied a certain status that made them uncomfortable, a status that could threaten their own roles and even create havoc politically. Without knowing it, the Sanhedrin has set the stage for the climax not only of the gospel, but the climax of Jesus' life and that of his closest followers. From the beginning of Luke's account, Jesus has been intimately connected with liberation, thus demonstrating more loudly than words that he is the Messiah. And from the beginning, he has healed and offered forgiveness, the latter stressing his intimacy with the Father. That intimacy would strengthen him in his suffering and death and would evoke a radical response from everyone who witnessed the final events of his life. As we close this study, we'll spend some time looking at those who were with Jesus in these final events, some of whom responded gracefully to the meaning of his death, and some of whom missed the meaning altogether. In their responses, I believe we can find lessons for ourselves as we continue to follow Jesus in our own lives. First, let's look at the two primary agents of imperial Rome in these final days of Jesus's life. History shows us that Pilate and Herod were not exactly model in their behavior and policies as leaders within Israel. Pilate is a weak, cowardly man who wields power for his own protection and brokers his power for the sake of political popularity. Of all the potential charges against Jesus, Pilate cared only about a claim that he was the king of the Jews. Even when he came to realize that Jesus posed no real threat to his power, Pilate couldn't find the moral courage to challenge the people or to go against their wishes. Instead, he maneuvered to have the trial moved and then suggested a kind of suspended sentence, hoping that that would pacify the crowds. When none of that worked, he gave in to the demands of a half-crazed mob, releasing a real criminal to punish an innocent man. Herod was no better really, but he doesn't seem to be worried about his popularity. He uses power more as a tool for his own amusement. You can imagine his court as a kind of circus act where the trainer cracks the whip expecting the wild animals to perform. But Jesus was no wild animal that could be tamed, and when he failed to jump through Herod's hoops, we see the cruelty of Herod, mocking Jesus before sending him away. Herod made a point of wanting to see Jesus. But his were not the eyes of faith. Herod and Pilate demonstrate for us the abuses of power. They fail to grasp that through Jesus they could realize new possibilities for their own lives. And in condemning him, they show weakness rather than strength. In contrast, Simon of Cyrene or Cyrene is not concerned about power or protecting his turf. His strength is made evident in the way he helps Jesus carry his cross. Luke seems very deliberate in the way he presents the scene, illustrating the earlier instructions from Jesus, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In a day that has been dominated by cruelty and cowardice, Simon's obedience stands in stark contrast. Another contrast is drawn in Luke's portrayal of the crowds, While it is true that a mob of people had participated in the cruelty of the day by crying out, crucify him, that was not the only response. As Jesus is led away, another part of the crowd is said to mourn and lament. Jesus identifies them as the daughters of Jerusalem, and Jesus tries to redirect their mourning by saying, weep instead for yourselves and for your children. Bear in mind that at the time Luke wrote his gospel, the destruction of Jerusalem was a reality, not just an impending threat. Jesus' lament over the city is not so much a prediction of bad to come, but a way of including Jesus in the interpretation of an event that had already occurred for Luke's audience. There have been many attempts to make um, a sense of Jesus' remark in chapter 23, verse 31, where he says, "'For if these things are done when the wood is green,' what will happen when it is dry? Probably my favorite interpretation is offered by Robert Karras. In his commentary, he asks, if they've done this to Jesus, who is life-giving, what will happen to poor, dead, unrepentant Jerusalem? At the time of Jesus' death, it seems the world itself has become surreal. Luke describes a scene complete with onlookers, gamblers, jeering soldiers, and sneering rulers. They showed their ignorance by using three titles to mock Jesus. The Chosen One, Messiah, and King of the Jews. Their taunting spoke a deep and ironic truth, for Jesus was indeed chosen, chosen for responsibility and not privilege. He was indeed anointed to save, but not without suffering. And he was a stronger ruler than they had ever known because he ruled through service rather than domination. In the midst of such chaos, we hear the prayer of Jesus Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They knew not who he was, and they knew not what they were doing. Their own agendas got in the way of their becoming disciples. Certainly, we can only speculate about what prevented one criminal from accepting Jesus while the other acknowledged Jesus and his kingdom. We don't know their crimes or their histories, or what made one fearful and bitter and the other open to change, even in the last moments of his life. But we can see that in the midst of personal horror, the crucifixion was a moment of grace for one criminal. In fact, he models for all of us a way to repentance. He recognized his own sinfulness and confessed his need to the one whose very nature is forgiving and liberating. The criminal's liberation from the bondage of sin had begun in his heart even while his arms and his legs were bound to a cross. Spiritual freedom does not depend on healthy bodies, secure jobs, or even a state of sinlessness. In fact, we often open ourselves most completely to such freedom in the midst of illness, job loss, or moral confusion. Job security, moral living, and good health are all beautiful gifts, but they're gifts with an edge. Moral living can easily become moral superiority, and that kind of pride can prevent us from seeing our own sin. When we're healthy and financially secure, we can be lulled into believing we have no real needs or that we can accomplish all things for our own steam. St. Augustine said our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. We try to still our restless hearts with all sorts of things and activities. But when we fill in all the gaps in our lives, we fail to leave room for God, the only one truly able to fill our needs. Donald Sr. points out that proximity to the cross liberates. We just saw that in the criminal's repentance. We see it also in the faithful response of the centurion who witnessed the death of Jesus. Verse 47 says that he glorified God and then it goes on to say this man was innocent beyond doubt. The remaining spectators were liberated from their sin and disbelief. In response to the cross it says that they returned home beating their breasts. The cross itself was an instrument of death, a means of capital punishment. In itself, it is a gruesome symbol. But Christians venerate the cross and associate it with the fullness of life because Jesus transformed it. Did you notice that Luke's gospel records the final prayer of Jesus in a totally different way than Matthew? In Matthew, Psalm 22 is on the lips of Jesus, where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Luke records Psalm 31 as the final prayer of Jesus. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This man, who was given over into the hands of his enemies, takes ultimate control and gives himself into God's hands. All along, Jesus has demonstrated the unexpected. His teachings had a sense of upside-downness, love of enemies, blessings to the poor, the hungry, the weeping, and the persecuted. His actions turned reality inside out. The sick were healed, the sinful forgiven, and the outcast brought into the inner circle. And now, his final words and actions reverse all expectations. From the cross, Jesus forgives, liberates, and trusts. And we begin to understand that resurrection cannot be separated from suffering. There are no express tickets straight to glory. Raymond Brown notes that in Luke's Gospel, only acts of grace follow the death of Jesus. The centurion proclaims Jesus' innocence. The spectators were moved to repentance. Joseph of Arimathea reverenced the body of Jesus in spite of his criminal status, laying it in a fresh tomb wrapped in linen, the ancient symbol of immortality, all acts of grace. And then there are the women from Galilee, forever faithful, responding in ways that would have been customary in the ancient world. After the death of Jesus, they went home, and it says they prepared spices and perfumed oils, and then it says that they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. A casual reading might cause us to wonder about such apparent legalism, but I found a wonderful comment on why the women stopped to observe the Sabbath in the midst of such upheaval. Fred Craddock says the following, When the ground gives way beneath the feet, when heaven and earth are shaken, when life's reason has been removed by death, something has to be the same, dependable and certain. What at such a time could be more nourishing and stabilizing than the same house of worship The same pew, the same scriptures, the same faces, the same prayers, the same voices, the same order of service. Luke is not reporting a case of mindless legalism, but how a group of women found a place to stand when everything seemed to be shaken out of order. I have to believe that their faithfulness to religious tradition anchored them for what was to come. The women of Galilee were the first to see the empty tomb. The first to be puzzled, terrified, and amazed at the events of that first day of the week. The messengers of God told them to remember what Jesus said while in Galilee, indicating that Mary, Magdala, Joanna, and Mary were part of those close followers surrounding Jesus in His public life. The simple line, why do you seek the living one among the dead, is their first indication that an empty tomb means resurrection, not robbery or prank playing. Eugene Laverdier says that the two messengers orient the women away from the tomb toward the community of the living. We might want to start looking around for God's messengers who do the same for us. Who helps you let go of grief over loss of a job? Who helps you let go of old habits and respond in fresh ways? Who helps you to see the world with new eyes, open to new ideas and life-giving possibilities? Why do we sometimes cling to death, be it sin or destructive behaviors or even dullness, when the living one is with us? We are being challenged to connect to a vibrant faith community, just as the women were so many centuries ago. We need a place where we can recognize the living one and share him with others. Perhaps the most memorable and moving story of a faith encounter with Jesus is told by Luke in the story of the disciples journeying to Emmaus this story seems to have it all. First, it is a journey story, physically moving the followers away from Jerusalem and then back, and spiritually moving them from confusion and doubt to conviction and direction. In an article in Church Magazine, Thomas Rosica suggests that the real journey was not travel from Jerusalem to Emmaus, but the journey of word traveling from the head to the heart. Now that can be a difficult journey. How long does it take for an intellectual insight to have transforming power in our lives? I may believe God loves me, but do I live in a deep conviction that I am a child of God? I may believe in God's power to forgive, but it sure takes a long time to really embrace forgiveness and let go of guilt and shame. This is also a revelation story and a Eucharistic story. Jesus makes known to them the meaning of the scriptures and the reality of his presence in the breaking of the bread. As the two walked toward Emmaus, a little town lost to memory, Jesus himself pursued them, an image of the good and loving shepherd searching for the lost sheep. And then he did two things that opened their eyes to see him and their hearts to believe him. First, he explained the scriptures and the necessity of the cross, and then he broke bread with them. He shared himself in word and at table, and the stranger became the beloved." The early followers of Jesus were a lot like our generation. They wanted to bypass suffering on the way to glory, but Jesus helped them to come to terms with the necessity of the cross. The early followers also missed the significance of their meals with Jesus, even the final Passover meal. And we still struggle to believe that simple bread and wine proclaim the very presence of Christ. Sometimes we find ourselves playing a fantasy game. I could live differently, believe more deeply, become a complete disciple if I had the advantage of really walking with Jesus while he was on earth. The Emmaus story dashes that fantasy. Cleopas and his companion had known Jesus personally in the flesh and they missed him until he opened the word and broke the bread. We have access to these same reservoirs of faith, the scriptures and the Eucharist, plus the advantage of centuries of believers as witnesses to us. We have the same opportunity to respond to Jesus in faith. Finally, the Emmaus story is a mission story. Luke's gospel has been dominated by the journey motif, but the journey did not end with death, nor did it end with the ascension. Just as Cleopas and his companion become witnesses to the resurrection, we are called to do the same. Because of the gift of the Spirit, the journey continues. The Acts of the Apostles is the story of Jesus' continuing journey through the church. In Luke's writings, the Spirit provides the power for mission to all the world in every generation. This mission is rooted in memory, remembering and making presence the the person of Jesus and his good news. But the mission is also enlivened by the presence of Jesus in the present moment as we share scripture and break bread, recognizing our own need and responding to the needs of others. The fact that the journey of Jesus continues through us is cause for great hope. Like Simeon and Anna at the start of the Gospel, we can be confident that God makes and keeps promises. Like the disciples who traveled with Jesus, we too have been formed in faith by His words and by His actions among us. Our lives mirror the life of Jesus to the extent that we have responded in faith and allowed Him to transform our lives so that we can take up His mission. No matter where we are, physically or spiritually, we are never far from God's temple. The early church had to be led away from the safety of Jerusalem to the wider world. They had to discover the temple of God's presence within each one of them and within cultures very, very different from their own. The temple of God's presence is within reach at every moment of our lives. And like the early believers, we have been clothed with power from on high.